Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Holy Spirit, would you feed us? Would you teach us the word? Would you apply it to our lives? We would be disciples of Jesus Christ, disciplined believers. We are walking in our generation uh, in, in, in the power of the Spirit, in the word of God. Lord, your life in us is as vital today as it was in that first church. And we bless you, Lord. Teach us now. Grace me to speak your word. Let you speak. Uh, so that we can hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. We're going to Capernaum. Would you take out your Bibles? I'm going to John chapter 6, and I'll start at uh, verse 40, uh, 64. Jesus is in Capernaum. He's multiplied the loaves and fish. He's walked across the lake. The disciples went in that terrible storm, and he pulled Peter out of the water. Um, they landed at the, at the beach at Gennesaret. Just had fish lunch at Gennesaret. And then they walked up to Capernaum. In the synagogue, he presented himself as two things. One is the manna. He said, I am a miracle from heaven. I've come from heaven like the bread appeared on the ground. I've come from heaven and appeared here in human flesh. And then he also presented himself as the Passover lamb. Passover was hours or days away from the moment he was in that synagogue. They were just before Passover. And so what he was telling this Jewish audience is, when you take Passover, when you take the bread that speaks of the Passover lamb, think of me dying for you. This, this bread is my body, which is given for you. And then he says, when you take that cup, the cup of redemption at that Passover meal, it speaks of my blood, even as the Passover lamb's blood was shed on the doors and lintel of a, of the, of a house to protect them from the angel of death. So my blood will protect you from eternal death. Do you believe that? When you take Passover tomorrow or the next day, when you take it, believe that. He was invited. It was an, it was an altar call in a Jewish synagogue. But how did they respond? There was a lot of rejection. And that's where we pick up. Verse 64. But there are some of you, he says, who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. I, would you read that for Jesus knew and write on through the rest of that verse with me. Read it out loud, please. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And who it was who, that would betray him. All right, I'll go on. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted from the Father. As a result... Of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. Now, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve. He was going to betray him. All right, let's look at our discussion guide. 
Few people in the Bible raise more questions than Judas Iscariot. Job would be a close second. <laughs> Job's always a question, isn't he? But so is, so is Judas. The most obvious question that arises when we think of Judas is why Jesus chose him in the first place. The Bible says Jesus spent all night praying about who were to be the 12 men who would travel with him as, as his disciples. Listen, it was at this time he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. That means sent ones. And then Luke lists the 12 and identifies the last one as Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. If I had gone off to pray and had chosen someone who had ended up betraying me, I would have assumed I had made a mistake, and that I had missed hearing God's will on that particular name. But Jesus didn't make such mistakes. And his choice of Judas couldn't have been one. Because John tells us that Jesus knew from the beginning. Say from the beginning again. He knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. That means he knew when he chose him what Judas would do. Now I can imagine someone hearing that and thinking that it must mean Jesus deliberately set himself up to be betrayed. But there's one fact that makes that impossible. The only way Jesus knew that information about Judas was because the Father revealed it to him. You recall, Jesus set aside that divine knowledge. He was functioning only as a, as a man full of the Holy Spirit. So the only way he knew is that the Father told that to him. And the only reason he chose Judas was because the Father told him to choose him. If there was a plan to place a traitor among Jesus' disciples, it was the Father's plan. I guess someone had to do it, and the father knew Judas would. So choosing Judas was no accident. But what's shocking is the way Jesus treated him. It appears he genuinely loved him. And that raises the biggest question of all. Why? All right, we're going to talk about loving Judas. We're going to retell those verses. Apparently, many of those who had begun to follow Jesus changed their opinion of him after they heard him describe himself as manna from heaven and the Passover lamb. It's not clear whether they stumbled because they took his challenge to eat my flesh and drink my blood literally rather than symbolically or because they rejected his claim that the Passover lamb was a prophetic symbol of his death on their behalf. But whichever it was, they, they heard him ask them to believe something they were unwilling to believe. So a large percentage of the crowd that had been pursuing him went home. John tells us that Jesus was not surprised when this happened. He knew instantly when, he, when someone started following him whether or not that person had genuine faith or was pursuing him for other motives. John also observed that Jesus even knew which of his disciples would betray him, meaning, of course, Judas Iscariot. It seems odd that one of the 12 men Jesus handpicked to be a disciple became so disloyal that in time he betrayed Jesus to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. John wrote these statements about Judas long after the betrayal took place, but he wants us to know that Jesus was never deceived by Judas. He knew the future, and he knew what Judas would do. Yet up to the evening when he was arrested, Jesus never disclosed this information to anyone. He always treated Judas with the same kindness that he showed toward the rest of the twelve. 
But he did on that day issue a warning which only Judas would understand, he said. But there are some among you who do not believe. Do you follow where I'm going with this? He knew. But the way he treated him could not be distinguished from any of them. And I want to suggest that this is a genuine warning. He's not, he's, this, is, this, is, this is not an aha. This is a genuine warning. He said, some of you do not believe. And we'll see more of these warnings. He warns him even though he knows he won't heed the warning. Jesus' blunt words about coming from heaven like manna and dying as our substitute, like the Passover lamb, caused many to abandon him. They loved following a miracle worker. They loved following a liberator who would set them free from Rome. But they refused to follow a dying Savior who had come from heaven to rescue them from God's judgment. And once it became clear that Jesus was determined to keep on talking about sin and judgment, their sin and judgment, most of the crowd decided to go home. Let me stop there a minute. Jesus will say that the only ones that can come to me are the ones who the Father draws. How does the Father draw a person? A father draws a person by convicting them of sin and showing them his mercy. Do you follow that? You, if a person is aware of their own sin, if they're honest with themselves, and what does it require? Integrity. That's what John 3, 19 through 21 there, Jesus is saying. He says, those who, those who, who, who come to the Lord come, are drawn to the light. God shines his light on your life, shows you where you are, and some people draw to him. Admit the truth. I'm a sinner. I'm in trouble. I'm in need. Oh, God, help me. Other people, I'm not looking at that. Nor am I going to let you change me. I like what I'm doing. I'm enjoying it. You're not going to stop me. And they pull away from the light. That's what Jesus says distinguishes between who gets saved and who doesn't. Nothing to do with a predetermined thing where God picks some and not others. It has nothing to do with that. Do you draw to the light? Do you pull away from the light? When, and how does the Father draw you? He convicts you of sin. People that know their sin know they need a Savior. How, how you, how's yours? How's your flesh? Mine's rotten. Mine hasn't gotten any better over the years. Has anyone, have you ever heard someone say, I, I can't believe I've been Christian this long. Why am I still dealing with this stuff? Huh? Paul makes it real clear. It's in your flesh. Your flesh, until you get resurrected someday, doesn't get any better. It's as nasty as it's ever been. Amen. And when you aren't in the Spirit, when you aren't walking with the Lord, when you follow the mind of the flesh, you're just as nasty as you ever were. Do you hear me? You can do horrible things. So can, I mean, I tell you something. The, you know, the fact that as you draw to the Lord... You, you really see the old nature and you see the new. You see Christ in you. You see his power. You see his grace. You see him use you. And you go, wow. And on the other hand, on a, on a Monday morning, or when you're tired or grumpy or whatever else, you're just as nasty as ever. And you go, oh. I can be self-righteous, critical, unkind. I can be fearful. I can be angry. Anybody else? Yeah. That's five of us. Come on. <laughs> I saw that. Uh, here's, here's the wonder of it. You will find people, you will find Christian people who are not honest with themselves. 
and will deny they've done anything wrong, blame everybody in town except themselves. Oh, they're a victim. They're acting out. Whatever it is, they'll psychologically deal with it, however it is. Point is, when you get honest with yourself and say, my flesh is horrible and I need a savior. I take communion. I just did. I take communion all the time. Not because I have some gross hidden life, but because my flesh just makes me sick. And to, in order to minister, in order to walk with the Lord, I just confess that garbage constantly and thank him for his mercy. I need, if it was anything other than Jesus, where I can be forgiven over and over and over again and empowered to walk differently, I would never make it. Anyone else? This is the Christian gospel. It is so realistic. It goes right after us. Doesn't call anything. Doesn't, you know, some people say, you know, you, you become a Christian, it all goes away. No, it doesn't. Quit lying. But greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And if I walk in the spirit, I can walk free of that garbage. I can do all kinds of, of, of lovely things by his spirit. By his spirit. But I need him all the time. Someday I get a resurrected body and this nasty old thing drops away. Hallelujah. And that body doesn't have any of that garbage in it. And it's, and it's very real. That's, one, that's the wonder. That's the last stage of, the, of, of what Jesus has done. See, he's redeemed my spirit. He's gave, he gives me eternal life. But this body isn't finished until the resurrection. Then we're done. Then I'm a, then I'm a child of God. In all parts of me, not just my spirit and, and all. My body is too. Yours too. Remember Paul calls it, he says, we, we wait groaning with creation for our redemption, for, for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's Romans 8. 18 or 19, right in there. The redemption of our bodies. Jesus says, those who come to me are honest when the Father convicts them. They know their sin. They know their need. And so the father draws them to be honest with themselves and reveals to them his love and mercy. So that when, when the father points and says, and here's why I can give you my mercy. I've sent my son to die for you. They receive it, believe it, and rejoice in it. It's not a problem for them. But those who refuse to look at their sin, those who are earning it by their own self-righteousness, those who are in full denial and just blaming everybody else, they don't feel like they need a savior. They just need understanding. Still true, isn't it? What he describes there in the Gospel of John is, is just as much at work in our generation as it was in his. This is just human nature. In fact, so many left him that he turned to the twelve and asked, You do not want to go away also, do you? Obviously, since he knew from the beginning who did and didn't believe, and even the future actions of Judas... It's, it's certain he already knew the answer to his question. He knew that all but Judas would remain loyal to him for the rest of their lives. But in that dangerous moment outside the synagogue in Capernaum, in that atmosphere filled with unbelief and grumbling, he also knew that it was important to give his disciples the opportunity to refuse to follow the crowd and choose to believe in him afresh. Do you see what I say? In, the, in that sour moment, He's, he's saying, do you want to leave? And he's letting them go, no, we're not leaving you. We don't understand, but we trust you. They were making a deep decision. As was so often the case, it was Peter who answered his question, who, who spoke openly what the others were thinking secretly. 
Having been asked if he wanted to cease being Jesus' disciple, Peter answered with a question of his own. He said, to whom shall we go? You have words, sayings of eternal life. And we have believed and have known that you are the Holy One of God. By identifying Jesus as the Holy One of God, Peter meant that he was the promised Messiah. In answering Jesus, he said, we have believed. But the truth is, was not all of them did believe. One of the twelve not only didn't believe, but in the future would betray Jesus to his executioners. The man's unbelief ran so deep that in the future it would make it possible for Satan himself to enter him and take control of his actions. By saying, one of you is a devil, Jesus was warning Judas to repent. He was showing him what was going to happen to him in the future. He would become demon-possessed. He would become a helpless victim in the deadly grip of the devil. He, we shouldn't miss the fact that even though Jesus knew Judas wouldn't repent, he lovingly warned him anyway. None of the disciples, with the exception of Judas himself, knew at the time whom Jesus, to whom he was speaking. But looking back on that betrayal long after it took place, John names him and he called him Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. You just assume some. It was the custom of, in Judaism at the time to identify one, someone as the son of their particular father. But here, instead of calling Judas, Judas ben Simon, John replaced the words ben Simon with Iscariot, which is actually a strange title of uncertain derivation. And I'll just tell you what that next thing says. It means one of two things, very likely. One is it means that Judas and his father are from the town of Kiriot. It's a kind of a combination word. The word ish in Hebrew means man. Isha is woman. So an ish Kiriot is a man from a town. Actually, the word Kiriot means town. It doesn't mean which town. We drove through Kiriot Jarim which is right about eight miles west of Jerusalem. It, and, and it means town in a forest. And indeed, it is a town in a forest. So is he from there, down in Judah? Maybe. The problem with that is, and this is what a lot of scholars think, that by calling Judas Judas Iscariot, they're identifying him as a Judean rather than a Galilean, which means the entire group's a bunch of bigots. It means that they're saying, well, we know why he betrayed Jesus. He's from those people, those Judeans, not up here with us Galileans. Pardon me, I think that's beneath them. I don't think that's them they're thinking at all. There is another possibility. There's a word, and, and actually you heard it when we went through the book of Acts. It's, it's, it's a word of a sicarii, and it's, it's, it speaks of daggers. So an ish sicarii. And there was a group called this, were dagger men. They were religious zealots, Jewish zealots, who would attack the Romans. And what they would do is in a crowd, uh, crowded streets, you know, full of people, they would have these sharp daggers in their robes. And they would come up, just sort of saunter up beside somebody, and then just, boom, just stick him in the side or so with, with a knife, pull it out. And when the man's kind of grasping, they would just melt right on into the crowd, and while everybody's going, ah, they just disappear. During Paul's time, because Paul, that word is actually in Acts 13. I mean, it's in the Bible. I didn't make that one up. It's, and and, and in, in Paul's time, they were having like one a week. People getting stabbed all the time. It was, it was, this is, now here's the deal. Those zealots, 
where one of the main locations is up there in Galilee, in those towns in Galilee. Remember one of Jesus' disciples, his name was Simon the Zealot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whether or not he was one of the dagger guys, that's another matter. But it's Simon the Zealot. And see, is it possible that Jesus went into a synagogue in one of the towns? Gamla, for example. Never mind, you don't know where that is. But, and he went in there and he, and he preached. And uh, Judas is listening to him. And, and, he, and he calls him out and he says, come out of violence and follow me. Come out in violence. Judas, it, makes me, it means Judas is a man who's longing for, for the freedom from the Romans. Longing for, for the kingdom of God to come and for Israel to be at peace again. That's his motivation. And so he begins to follow Jesus. But he became disappointed in Jesus. How did that happen? We've just even read it in chapter 6. Remember when, when he multiplied the loaves and fish? It says everybody was going to do what? Make him their king. And he refused it. Then he puts his disciples in the boat, I think in a frustrated way. He says, get out of here. Sail across that lake. Get out of here. Because everybody wants him to rise up and lead them to freedom. And every time he did that, he broke Judah's heart, I think. Essentially, Judas was Jesus' enemy. Or became that. And here's what Jesus said about enemies. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Would you pick it up there from he causes and read it out loud with me. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I've always read those words with the assumption that God wanted me to be kind to people in order to wear down the resistance to the gospel. In other words, I was to love my enemy in order to win him or her to Christ. But in Judah's case, we watch Jesus be kind to someone he knows he will never win. Ever. There's not a chance. And that forces me to rethink this command. And when I do, I discover its goal is to change me, not my enemy. That means in God's mind, loving this way is not an evangelistic technique. It's not a strategy designed to reach the hard-hearted. Though it may indeed do so. It's about me becoming like him. And he's kind to everyone. You see where we're going with this? You, you, it's, am I alone in thinking, you know, well, we need to be nice to people as, as, you know, as long as they're coming to the Lord. But at some point, if it appears that they're just sort of stubborn and not going there, well, I'm moving on to better, to, 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 to better target. <laughs> I am alone, aren't I? But I, man. I'm going to tell you this, 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 this message... I, I've, I struggled hard trying to think of a positive illustration from my own life. <laughs> I couldn't. Uh, but I can think of a lot of negative. Uh, haven't you, haven't I, come to places where we work with people and minister to people and reach out to people? And after a while you go, this one is just not going anywhere. This dog won't hunt. Uh, this person is not responding. They're, just, they're hard-hearted. They're cold. They're, they're, you know, they've even turned on me. I'm done. I'm moving on. Anybody else move on? Yeah, me too. And then I get this. So I'm kind of, I'm just taking this in right along with you, I, to be honest with you. 
It's not an evangelistic technique. On another occasion, occasion, Jesus said something similar. Would you read this out loud with me? If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But love your enemies and do good. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Whoa! Please notice that our reward is that we become like God. Not that we'll win souls. Again, such kindness often does win souls. But Jesus doesn't even mention that possibility here. His focus was on the change that would take place in us. When we love those we we know will never love us back, we're becoming like our Heavenly Father. Jesus and Judas. When Jesus said, one of you is a devil, no one knew who he meant. That fact alone tells us how he treated Judas. Clearly, he treated him no differently than the rest of his disciples. He didn't shame Judas. In fact, he even trusted him to handle their finances. You recall that? He was the keeper of the purse. (laughs) At one point, during his final week in Jerusalem, he outsmarted Judas so he wouldn't be able to report to the religious leaders where they were going to meet to take Passover. Anybody know what that was? Remember, yes, he's, remember he comes to the final, uh, we're in the final week of, and he says uh, it was the day to prepare Passover. And the disciples said, Lord, where should we prepare the Passover? And he says to, to uh, two of them, was it, go on into the city and there you will find a man carrying a water jar. Remember this strange, strange account? He said, what is this about? Um, you'll find a man carrying a water jar. Uh, tell, uh, tell him uh, the Lord has need of a place and, and follow him. And uh, yeah. now you say, what's that about? Well, you need to know that in that culture, basically, normally, a man didn't carry a water jar. That's woman's work. I mean, pardon me. Uh, it was woman's work. So women fetched the water. But suddenly you'll have a man carrying a water jar. By the way, who is this man? It's going to either be John Mark or his dad. John Mark, and, and you, you, who wrote the gospel. It was at John Mark's house. His mother's name is Mary. Uh, this was where the upper room was. This is, this is where the church became headquarters in Jerusalem for the church. This is where Peter went after he got released from jail. And, and Rhoda, the servant, leaves him standing outside knocking on the door. It's their house. Mary's either brother or her cousin is Barnabas. It's a family. So anyway, follow the guy and he'll leave. What was the point? The, all the disciples are standing there listening. What is Judas looking for? An opportunity to go to the leaders and tell them where they can arrest him in private. Whether they can secretly get him. So Jesus wants to observe this. Does not want Judas to know because he wants very much to serve this final Passover to his disciples before he's arrested. So he's arranged a, a signal. He's arranged the signal. So they said, well, where should we do it? They said, go into the city and look for a man carrying a water jar. Follow him. He'll lead you. And so Judas didn't know where they were going until they got there. Pretty smart, huh? Yeah. He just schnookered him. All right. (laughs) During the meal, Judas was seated next to Jesus at the table. 
And in a final appeal for repentance, Jesus dipped a piece of unleavened bread into a dish of bitter herbs. The term is maror. And offered it to him. When, remember this. In fact, we just saw, we just saw the evidence of a triclinium. These tables, these low tables, about 18 inches high or so. You'd lean on one side. In front of Jesus, right directly in front of him, is Judas. He sits next to him at this final meal. Who's right behind him? John. So when Jesus at that meal says, one of you is going to betray me. Peter looks across the table, because he's at the bottom of the table, I think. He looks across the table and goes, to John. And John leans back and says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus says, the one to whom I offer the morsel. Well, what he did is he, is he took a piece of the uh, matzah, the unleavened bread, and dipped it in the bitter herbs. There would have been a dish between them, right there in the front. He dipped it in the bitter herbs. Does anyone remember what those bitter herbs represent in a Passover meal? The bitterness of bondage. The bitterness of slavery to Egypt and of, uh, to sin. And so they use horseradish. They use all kinds of stuff. But they, I mean, I've had these, these bitter herbs. So it's some little bowl of bitter herbs. And he tips, picks that up on that, on that piece of bread. And he offers it to Judas. What's the symbol? Judas, don't do it. Don't do where you're going is going to bring you into bitter bondage. This is a prophetic symbol he holds to him. Judas understands it and flares. And it says at that moment, the devil entered him. Don't you tell me not. So there was, you, there was something that went on in the face right there. As he says, it's going to be bitter. It's going to be bitter. Judas couldn't have missed the symbolism. The bitter herbs represented the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. And by presenting these, those herbs to Judas, Jesus was warning him that the betrayal he was planning would bring bitter bondage. Sadly, instead of producing repentance, Jesus' warning only infuriated Judas. And at that moment, Satan entered into him. And seeing this, Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. His appeal to Judas failed. Yet the fact he still tried to warn him that he invited him to escape that bitter future is amazing. He reached out one last time to a man he knew wouldn't listen. Why? To shame him? No. He did it because he loved him. Someday in the future when God reviews Judas' life, the record will show that Jesus loved him to the very end. Even though he knew he would lose him. What does this mean? It means that God is kind even to those he knows will reject him. Did you hear that? I'm going to do it again. It means God is kind even to those he knows will reject him. And that reveals something very profound about God. To him, being kind is not a means to an end. It's the expression of who he is. And therefore, regardless of how humans might respond, he doesn't change. He's good all the time. Say that. He is good. So if you and I are going to become like him, we have to do what he does. We have to treat rebellious people, even a Judas, like he does. 
Not to not be nice to someone only so long as we think we might win them to Christ. And then grow cold if they prove to be stubbornly resistant. Our love for our enemies is to be sincere and endure to the end. Loving like that is an essential part of becoming like him. How we love our enemies matters for us. Even after it ceases to matter for them. It's one of the ways we suffer with Christ. And becoming like him is a good enough reason even if there were no other. Now, I'm going to say more about this because it brings out all kinds of questions, doesn't it? What does this mean? How do I do this? But it does mean this. I do not seal my heart off. Even if I can't trust a person, it doesn't mean I allow myself to grow hard. I was sitting at the breakfast table this morning processing a couple of folks. (laughs) Nobody in this room. I was. That doesn't mean I trust them. I can't trust them. Absolutely can't trust them. I can't allow them to just continue to wreak havoc. But it does mean I cannot dispose of them. (laughs) I got to pray. So what's my best option? Pray for them. Just not grow hard. Not hate. Not, Not flush. And move on. But to continue to love. And long for the best. Isn't that hard? And isn't, aren't you grateful God deals with us like that? He will love us to the end. He will love your children to the end. He will love your parents to the end. He will not let anyone go. He will fight for us to the end. And if he loses, he loses. But he will not give up. That's his nature. And we are to be children of the Most High. Like our Father. But there is another reason. This kind of love does not go unnoticed. It makes a powerful statement about the depth of God's grace. Maybe even a stronger statement than than if that person had been converted. Because it strips away all suspicion of ulterior motives. There is no self-interest in that kind of love. And it's so unusual that wherever it's practiced, even future generations look back and marvel. When that kind of love takes place, it leaves an impact. And people look back on it. I mean, we write books about people who did this kind of thing. It, it, it's, it stuns us. A common charge against Christians is that our love is phony. It's said that we only pretend to love in order to proselytize someone. But when we truly love our enemies and don't stop, even when it becomes apparent that they will never believe, that accusation is silenced. And our critics are confronted by the essential goodness of God. I think there was one more reason Jesus was kind to Judas. It's a painful truth to hear, but it's very real. I heard someone say it this way. For those without Christ, this world is the closest they'll ever be to heaven. For those who know Christ, it's the closest they'll ever be to hell. That perspective helps us to understand why God was so kind to Judas. Watching Jesus love Judas is like watching a parent lavishing love on a dying child. Yes, Judas was rebellious and he would perish. But the father created him 
with the intention that he would become a beloved son. And that father still loved him and chose to be kind to him while he still could. Judas rejected that love and then opened himself to demonic possession and finally killed himself, apparently before he was able to repent. So it's almost certain he stepped into a terrible eternity. Notice I say almost certain. I don't know that. And you don't know that. No one knows. God alone knows the hearts of people. Judas did not commit the unforgivable sin. Had he repented, would the Lord have forgiven him? I think the Lord would have pursued him as he did Peter. This is the nature of our God. The horror of it is. The man opened himself to demonic possession and the devil made sure he killed him before that could happen. Peter did not kill himself. That's the big difference. And so the Lord was able to reach out and restore Peter. But Judas took his life. Took his life. And so that could not happen. Who knows that story, but I will say it looks like he perished. Yet our heavenly father reached out to that tragic man through his son to the end. And he still asks you and me to allow him to use us to do the same for those like Judas in our generation. Some people will never appreciate our love. Some may even laugh at us and consider us to be gullible fools. Some may cynically exploit our generosity. And yes, we may need to draw boundaries because we should only do what the Father asks of us rather than what unhealthy people demand of us. But the example of Jesus loving Judas teaches us that we must not turn kindness on and off. We must not use it to manipulate people. We must continue to love those who don't love us and never will. We must continue to be kind to those who may never believe Why? Well, one, for the Father's sake, so he can show them his love while it's still possible. Two, for the sake of those who are watching so they can understand the depth of God's grace. And three, for our own sake, so that our hearts will be purified and become like our Heavenly Father's. Until we too can love like his Son loves. Would you stand with me? To me, this is what it means to let Jesus disciple me. That if I'll study his word and open it up and see what he's really saying and what's going on. Boy, does he does he do a number on us. This is a hard, hard word to hear. How many have a Judas in your life? You've got you. you, I mean, I probably wasn't 10 minutes into this thing and you got names and faces coming in front of you. Huh? Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm telling you this one. This is fresh and this is raw to me. I am processing this and I will for a while. Um, What does this mean? What does this mean? Because I have been one in order for self-preservation. When I take certain betrayals to just, you know, in a sense, wish them well, but turn it off and move on. You know, how much of that can you accumulate? And yet there's something I'm not, I'm doing wrong in that. And in hardening myself, isn't this like, like medical personnel? I know that because I got so many family members. When you work in an emergency room, it, there's something inside that after a while, how long do you endure the emotion of watching someone go through this horrible thing? My wife would come home at times and vomit. 
There's stories she's told me I can't forget. But how do you stay a tender nurse, a doctor? How do you stay in that environment and not just go insane? Well, one of the ways people handle it is they, they get hard. And it becomes you're just dealing with a unit, a patient, an issue, a problem, not a person. But in doing that, it ruins you. You get hard. You get mean. You get steely. You're ruined even as you protect yourself. Well, then how do we handle it? How do we go through life? I just had a pastor's meeting this past week. And boy, those pastors, so many of them are really wounded. People come and they treat them one way and then they abandon them and they call them names and they move from church to church and just do horrible things. These pastors are beat up bunch. We're not, a, we're not an easy people, us Americans, to pastor. I'm going to tell you that. And they were wounded. How do you live with this but stay loving and sweet and stay human? Because all of us have Judases. I do, you do. Well, well, I guess we follow our Heavenly Father and trust Him to sustain us. That if He asks it of us, we can do it. That we can love beyond our, what we think we can do and not be destroyed by that kind of love. That we can forgive, we can pray for people, we can refuse to let that crust, that hardness, that self-defense, that, that bitter anger that we think we need to protect ourselves, we can let it go and love. Heavenly Father, boy, those words I think are especially uh, Beautiful today. What a father you are. I don't think we have a clue how much you love us. Even the most rebellious of us. Even the one who successfully will perish without you. You love us to the end. And Lord, you ask us as your sons and daughters to be like you. And to have a heart in us like you. To treat people like you. As you make your rain to shine on the just and the unjust, the, the wicked and the ungrateful, you ask us to do the same. We need real wisdom in this. But Lord, we say to you, yes. We will pick up this part of the cross. We will pick it up and we will do it joyfully. And you will be with us and it will not destroy us. In fact, it will refine us and make our hearts like your heart. So come, Holy Spirit, and teach us to love at a different level. Now, this is a dangerous prayer I've prayed. It really is. Because he, but if you, are, if you are saying, yes, Lord, I will indeed uh, want to love a Judas, my enemies, the way you ask me to, would you say, yes, Lord? Yes. Hear us, our Father. We are your disciples. Jesus, we're following you. You are the rabbi. You are our teacher. We will walk behind you and obey you. So we want to love like you. Refine us and make us such people. Come Holy Spirit. And by faith, by faith, we believe that that obedience will open new potential. That by faith, that will, obedience will open healing and avenues we've never dreamed of. We believe for that now. In Jesus' powerful name. And everybody said, Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. 
For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.